Epistemology? What's that? And why do we have to understand that before we start our study on the emergent church? We're going to talk about that today and more on BibleStudyPodcast.org, starting now. Hello, everybody. Today is Friday the 13th of 2009. Yeah, I've been waiting just to do a podcast on Friday the 13th one of these days, and that's why we didn't have our lesson yesterday. Just kidding. Anyway, welcome to BibleStudyPodcast.org. I'm your host, Toby Logsdon, and today we're going to be doing something a little bit different than what we've been doing. We just finished our study on uh, on hell. We're doing uh, the study where we examine the ethics of all these options that God has uh, or could have had pertaining to hell and also the biblical support for those positions. So we're done with that. Uh, that was a, a great study, and I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Actually, uh, you know, I told you guys, I think, that I'm, I was looking at self-publishing uh, that study kind of as a book. But I was recently uh, contacted by a publisher who was maybe interested in putting a book like that together. So uh, this acquisitions editor got in touch with me and asked me if I'd be interested in submitting a proposal to his publisher by the 4th of December, uh, and they would get a decision for me by the 11th of December. So uh, I have been busy getting that ready, and uh, along with the proposal, they want me to submit one entire chapter, a sample chapter. So I've been working on all this stuff, trying to uh, trying to get this ready, trying to, to really not necessarily fancy it up, but just develop the arguments and maybe state them as plainly as I possibly can. But anyway, if you guys could be praying for me about that, that would be really awesome. Uh, I have always wanted to write books, uh, not fiction, just nonfiction, obviously. I mean, you know, things like what we do on here, things that we study on here. And so maybe this is a, a chance for me to, to get a book out there. And I'm not looking to make any money on my first book. Of course, you know, the first book is just kind of to get your name out there. But I've got to get my name out there if I want to publish books. So that's what I'm hoping to do. And I am working on uh, developing this proposal and uh, just putting some finishing touches on some of the um, some of the wording in uh, in the chapter that I'll be submitting. So anyway, I hope that you guys uh, enjoyed that study. And like I said, the next study that we're going to be doing is called Deconstructing the Deconstructors. And this is going to be a study on the emergent church. Uh, so we'll go ahead and get started with that here in just a minute. But I did want to remind you guys that we are a listener-supported ministry, and we do rely on your gifts and donations to us to keep us going with our ministry. So if the Lord's leading you to support our ministry, we need your support. Some of you may know, some of you maybe didn't catch the announcement a few months ago, but we've got over 3 million downloads in the past two and a half years. And we're getting close to that three and a half million mark already. I, I can't believe it, but yeah, we're getting close to that. And we've reached about a quarter million distinct ISPs from around the world, from literally on every uh, continent in the world. So if you would participate financially in this ministry, that would be such a blessing for us and for those who haven't heard yet. 
Anyway, let's go ahead and get started with today's lesson. Again, we're uh, we're talking about the emergent church. That's the study that we're going to be going into. But doing a study on the emergent church movement is extremely complicated, as anyone who's ever done a study on this movement will tell you. Uh, in fact, uh, one of the books that I read as I've been preparing for this study is called Why We're Not Emergent by Two Guys Who Should Be by Kevin DeYoung and Ted Cluck. And uh, they liken it to nailing jello to a wall. I thought that was a pretty good illustration or a pretty good image that you get for how difficult it is to study these guys. And there are a few reasons for this. First of all, the emergent church, uh, it's not a denomination of churches or anything like that. Uh, some of them are non-denominational. A lot of them are non-denominational. Uh, and some of them belong to you know just various denominations. But there's really nothing that officially, and that's the key word here, officially binds them together, at least not on paper. So as such, there's no uh, you know doctrinal statement that's universally accepted by churches in the emergent movement, which, by the way, uh, just real quick here, that's not to be confused with the emerging church movement. Uh, we'll talk about the distinction later on in this study. But instead, what binds the emergent church movement together is a philosophy, and not only a philosophy of ministry, which involves the deconstruction of traditional doctrines and dogmas of the Christian faith, but also by their epistemology. Now, I know that some of you are probably freaking out when you hear that word. This word, epistemology, sometimes uh, intimidates people. It sends them spiraling into confusion because they don't know what it means. And it sounds intimidating. Sounds like a 50-cent word. But to put it in the plainest terms possible, uh, epistemology is the study which relates to the foundation and the nature of knowledge. Let me say that again. Epistemology is the study which relates to the foundation and nature of knowledge. The study of epistemology asks questions like, can we know anything and how do we know anything? And it also puts a heavy emphasis on trying to figure out uh, how we can differentiate between things that are true and things that are false. And maybe it asks the question, uh, are there some things that aren't either true or false? So the question of how we know anything is an unbelievably complicated issue. And uh, some massive books have been written on that topic, which offer you know maybe some various theories on the matter. Well, we won't be covering uh, that topic in this study, the, the topic of how we know anything. Uh, there are books out there if you want to read those. Instead, we'll start this study off by focusing on the issue which is actually logically prior to that question, and that is whether or not we possess the ability to know anything. Can we know anything? Well, a lot of people in academic circles would actually deny that we can know anything in an objective sense. And of course, when we say objective sense, we mean to make a distinction between that which is true for all persons in all places and times, uh, that's what we would call objective knowledge, and something that is only true for an individual person, that is what we would call uh, subjective knowledge. Well, let me give you guys a quote, for example. Uh, quote, there is no knowledge, no standard, no choice that is objective, end quote. And that's according to Professor Barber Hernstein-Smith, who serves as the director at the Center for Interdisciplinary Studies in Science and Cultural Theory at Duke University, and she was also the former president of the Modern Language Association. I mean, if you think about what she just said, 
think about that statement. That's a pretty bold claim, especially coming from a university professor. I mean, who wouldn't like to have a college professor or university professor who honestly believes that there's no such thing as objective truth, and then they put that into practice consistently? I mean, if she were to put that into practice consistently, she couldn't give anyone a bad grade for anything because she doesn't have any objective knowledge by which she could know that one thing is more or less true than anything else. She couldn't say that it's wrong to cheat on her tests because she couldn't objectively know that it's wrong to cheat on a test. This isn't anything new, however, this type of thinking. Uh, in the Jewish Talmud, we find a catchy little saying, and it says this, quote, we do not see things as they are. We see them as we are, end quote. Well, that just sounds like it's you know just overflowing with genuine wisdom and knowledge, doesn't it? It sounds really deep. In other words, we don't have objective knowledge of things. Rather, we only have subjective knowledge, which causes our pre-understandings of everything, or, you know, our worldview, to skew or distort our perception of everything. And so that's when we see something, we only see in accordance with our personal subjective pre-understandings and predispositions, which actually serve to reveal more about us than they do about the actual object or the, the thing being perceived. And again, this sounds wise, but is there an underlying epistemological problem with it? You know, I had dinner uh, this past week with an agnostic friend of mine, and he made a statement that was actually very similar to this quote from the Talmud, uh, and which maybe states it a little bit more clearly. I was talking to him about how, you know, like C.S. Lewis said, there must be a God if there's a moral standard. And so he replied by saying, everything is subjective. And that's a quote, quote, everything is subjective. Well, is it? Does morality boil down to, you know, I like chocolate, you like vanilla, you say tomato, I say tomato, let's call the whole thing off. Again, you know, we have to ask if there's an epistemological problem here, which is underlying the statement that, quote, everything is subjective, end quote. And I bring these statements up because the denial of objective knowledge is a trademark of postmodern thought, postmodern philosophy. According to postmodern philosophy, we don't know anything Objectively, all we have are our perceptions, our own individual perceptions and personal interpretations. And this is a philosophy that, for the most part, is embraced wholeheartedly by uh, the the leaders of the emergent church. Brian McLaren, for example, who's probably one of the biggest names in the emergent church movement, he says things like, and I'm paraphrasing here, he says things like, my position on homosexuality in the church is probably wrong. Uh, for this reason, he thinks that we should take a five-year hiatus on making a call one way or the other on the issue of homosexuality. Now, for the average person, if they think that their stand on a particular issue is probably wrong, which he says it's probably wrong, uh, you know, they would change their position on that issue. But for the postmodernist, we don't know anything. So there's no need for us to change or to correct our positions. And further, you know, just uh, practically speaking, what are we supposed to do when people struggling with homosexual desires and impulses come to us for advice and direction throughout this five-year hiatus? Uh, according to McLaren, we should simply say, well, come back and see me in five years. 
Obviously, that wouldn't be helpful at all, and I don't think people respect uh, anyone who avoids issues like homosexuality altogether. Anyway, Rob Bell, he's another leader in the emergent church movement. He says that truth is bigger than any one religion, and he emphasizes the idea that truth is bigger than the categorical boxes we've closed ourselves into. So according to Rob Bell, we need to be thinking uh, of truth as being bigger than the box we've put ourselves into. You get the point, hopefully. The emergent church embraces the epistemological idea that we don't know anything. But again, is there a problem with saying we don't know anything? Well, yes, there is. It proves that we know something. And if we know something, then we don't not know anything. Let me say that again. If we know something, then we don't not know anything. Think of it this way. One has to know that we don't know anything in order to say or even believe um, you know, that we don't know anything. Well, there are three laws of thought, uh, philosophically speaking, three laws of logic. There's the law of identity, which means basically that when we look at a, a chair, for example, and we say, that's a chair, we mean to say, that is a chair. In other words, uh, the law of identity states that a referent or an object of reference is identical to itself. There's also the law of the excluded middle, which means that a thing either is or is not. For example, to use the chair again for an illustration, uh, we would say that something either is or is not a chair. Now, I know what you're thinking. Someone might say, well, what about a pile of books? It's not a chair, but we could use it as a chair, right? Well, again, however, we'd respond by saying that either we can use that pile of books as a chair or we can't. That's the law of the excluded middle. Something is either A or non-A. The third law of thought, which is the one that I want us to focus on for the time being, is the law of non-contradiction. Now, the law of non-contradiction basically states that contradictory ideas can't both be true at the same time and in the same sense. We can't tell what is true based only on this law of thought alone, but we do use it to isolate possibilities and to eliminate possibilities. For example, the statement, we don't know what's true, is logically contrary or contradictory to the statement, we know what's true. And here's the catch. It's logically impossible to deny the law of non-contradiction, because in order to deny it, someone has to also affirm it. In other words, to say the law of non-contradiction is false necessarily implies that the opposite, which would be the law of non-contradiction is true, is a false statement. And so thus the statement, the law of non-contradiction is false, actually proves that the law of non-contradiction is true. It uses the law of non-contradiction. Rabbi Zacharias tells the story of how one time he went to, uh, to a university to speak, as he often does, and he spoke about the objective nature of knowledge. And after his, uh, after his talk, uh, a professor from the university approached him and asked if they could uh, discuss the matter of objective knowledge over a meal. And uh, so Ravi uh, accepted the invitation. So when they got to the dinner table at this restaurant, the university professor begins, uh, he pulls out a napkin and he begins diagramming and explaining what, uh, you know, what Western logic is and Eastern logic is and the differences. And he's explaining that Western logic uses either or propositions, but Eastern logic is better because it uses both and propositions. 
And therefore, the professor argued, uh, Ravi should learn to use Eastern logic, which doesn't pay any mind to the law of non-contradiction, uh, instead of using Western logic, uh, which incorporates the law of non-contradiction, necessarily. So, once the professor was done with his lecture, uh, Ravi threw the professor for a loop by saying, let me get this right, professor. It sounds to me like you're saying that either I must use Eastern logic or I must use Western logic. Either I must use Eastern logic or I must use Western logic. So it sunk in with the professor. The professor knew that by saying that Ravi should use Eastern logic, he was actually affirming what he referred to as Western logic. And of course, there's no such thing as Eastern or Western logic. There's just logic. It's universal. But anyway, you know, in order for us to show the problems with the emergent church, uh, it'll be necessary for us to learn how to put the law of non-contradiction into practice. We'll need to learn how to identify statements which prove to be completely illogical because they're actually affirming the very thing that they're denying. So let's go ahead and just get a little bit of practice in here using the law of non-contradiction uh, by looking at some of the statements that I've already brought up here in this lesson. So let's start with the statement, we don't know anything, and apply the law of non-contradiction to it. Well, sometimes you have to look beyond the statement a little bit. You have to look uh, for implications to find uh, the, the contradiction within a statement. In this case, we only have to see that it implies that the person making the statement knows that we don't know anything. So if we know that we don't know anything, then obviously we know something, and so thus we see that this statement is actually affirming the very thing it's denying, knowledge. What about that statement by uh, the Duke University professor? There is no knowledge, no standard, no choice that is objective. What's wrong with this statement, epistemologically speaking? Well, what's wrong is that it's denying the possibility of objective knowledge, but the statement itself is objective. Logically speaking, this is the equivalent of saying the words, I don't know how to talk. You know, if somebody were to, uh, to say to you, I don't know how to talk, what would you say? You'd say, well, how did you just say that then? Obviously, you know how to talk. It's the same thing here. What about the statement from the Talmud? We do not see things as they are. We see them as we are. What's the problem, epistemologically, with this statement? Well, the problem, obviously, is that it's claiming to see this statement as objectively true in and of itself. It's saying there's no objective knowledge, but the person who wrote this is claiming to have objective knowledge of the fact that there's no objective knowledge. It's saying everything we perceive is tainted by our pre-understandings, but it's also claiming to perceive this truth independently of pre-understandings. And so thus, this statement, as wise as it might seem, as deep as it might sound, is actually affirming the very thing that it's attempting to deny, and it's failing miserably at that, by the way. The statement is both denying and affirming objective knowledge at the same time and in the same sense. Okay, so what about the statement from my friend, everything is subjective? Well, obviously, the problem with this statement is that it's objective. Uh, but if the statement itself is objective, then the idea that everything is subjective is necessarily false. And even if we're talking about morality here, which is actually the subject that we were discussing when he said this, uh, nobody believes that morality is subjective. They might say that they think morality is subjective, but nobody really, in practice, believes that it's subjective. How do we know? 
Because if morality is subjective, then feeding a starving family is morally equivalent to the act of stealing food from that starving family. If morality is subjective, then murdering an innocent person is morally equivalent to, uh, you know, whatever, eating a piece of broccoli. But you see, in order for everything to be morally subjective, everything must be morally neutral. But nobody believes that everything is morally neutral. And if you want proof of that, try stealing from them, try assaulting them, try lying to them. And of course, I'm not really uh, actually encouraging you to do any of those things to anyone. But the point is that in any of these instances, if they believe that you've done something morally wrong, and they would, uh, then you've proven your point. And when we're talking about morality, if we can establish the fact that everything is not morally neutral, if we can establish the fact that killing an innocent child is not the moral equivalent of eating, uh, eating broccoli, then we've demonstrated that morality is objective. And in the case of my agnostic friend, his argument is that if God um, you know, exists, then he shouldn't allow suffering, or he wouldn't allow suffering. But by making this statement, he's saying that suffering is morally worse than safety. Let me say that again. By making this statement, he's saying that suffering is morally worse than safety. Suffering isn't morally equivalent to the act of tying your shoes to him, obviously. And so thus, he's appealing to an objective standard of morality. But if there's an objective standard of morality, well, where does that standard come from? Obviously, it's transcendent. It's above and beyond us as human beings or as individuals. That objective standard comes from God's own nature and reflects the image of God within us. Here's another one, one last one. Uh, I received in an email yesterday. He said, quote, the original authors, that is, of the Bible, the original authors were still themselves human and could therefore make mistakes or put their own spin on things, end quote. Now, logically speaking, uh, what's wrong with this statement? Well, the problem is that if it's true that human authors uh, always err or put their own spin on things, then the statement itself must necessarily be in error. It's impossible, logically, to say humans always err. Because if this statement were true, then the person who says humans always err would be in error in making this statement. The fact is that, yes, humans sometimes err, but they don't always err. Uh, if they don't always err, then it's logically possible for the Bible to be error-free, even if we don't take into consideration the divine inspiration of Scripture. And further, to say the authors may have erred is a gigantic leap, logically, from saying the authors did err. Uh, the former is non-definitive, while the latter is definitive. And so thus, in a sense, these statements are logically contradictory. They're at opposite ends of the spectrum. But alas, you know, this is a subject that's, uh, that's worthy of its own discussion. Let's go ahead and stay focused here. We're almost done here. But in summary, you know, we see that the law of non-contradiction is, uh, is now at our disposal and that it demonstrates that truth is indeed knowable. Maybe not all truth. I'm not saying that all truth is knowable, but at least some truth must necessarily be knowable because it's undeniable. So we use the law of non-contradiction by applying the implications of a statement to the statement itself. And that's why I actually refer to this as the implosion 
technique. Uh, you know, coming from Las Vegas and, you know, what they do with the old buildings there, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with how implosions work. A building is loaded with dynamite and, you know, then it gets set off and the building collapses on itself. It implodes. And similarly, once we understand how to recognize self-defeating statements, statements that essentially collapse on themselves, responding to the emergent church and recognizing the problems within the movement is going to be a lot easier for us. So let's go ahead and study up, uh, learn how to identify self-defeating statements, self-defeating arguments, learn how to use the implosion technique, and we'll start putting that into practice in the lessons to come on the emergent movement. But God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hope this has been fruitful for you. I've enjoyed it. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus.